You're listening to Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Janda. Hey everyone, welcome back to Screenwriters Need to Hear This. I'm Michael Jammin. I got a cool guest today. So as many of you know, my, my very first comedy writing job in Hollywood, I was a joke writer on a morning TV show on ABC called The Mike and Maddie Show. And my next guest is Michael Berger, the host of Mike and Maddie. Mike, thank you so much for joining me here. What a, what nice, a nice to see and reconnect with you again. It's It's been a few. And you are, I mean, yeah, and this is, I know you're not quite a screenwriter, but I, I think you have a lot to, I don't know, just a lot to add to the conversation because you're a professional talk show host and you posted so much. I'm going to blow through some of your credits real fast just so people- Well, don't blow through them. I want you to land on them and marinate on them for a while. Let's linger on them unnecessarily <laughs> for a long time. So obviously Mike and Maddie, but the home and family, uh, Family Feud, the live version, as well as The Price is Right, the live version, $1,000 Pyramid, Match Game, Iron Chef, Personals, the late night dating show, Straight to the Heart, not to mention your long history as a stand-up comedian on cruise ships and then later uh, doing warm-up. I want uh, for audiences, for sitcom audiences, which I know you've, you know, I know we've been on many of the same shows, which is, that's a whole nother uh, level of, of comedy. I want to talk about that. But first I want to talk sure. about like where you began. It was, how, how did you become a, 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 you know, comedian for cruise ships? Well, you know, a lot of these entries into showbiz come in through the side door and this uh, was certainly the case. I was a big fan of Steve Martin. Yeah. And back in the late seventies, there was a contest where they were looking for a Steve Martin look-alike, sound-alike, and the payoff, the winner, got a uh -huh. spot on The Tonight Show with Carson. So I figured this is my entry in. So I figured that I, I win this contest and I get my own show. Well, and you, and you, you did. Had a, <laughs> well, kind of. Uh, you had to submit a cassette tape, audio cassette tape, mm -hmm. of you doing Steve Martin. No video cameras, right? Just a cassette. And they wanted that in theory in front of a live audience. Well, I, ha I hadn't done any stand-up. There's no live audience, but my audience in the day was my classroom. So I went back to my high school and said, can I borrow the classroom and just do Steve Martin's material? And I'll take my best cut from that. So I went to five teachers. I did five five-minute sets and I submitted that tape with the best of the five to the radio station who said, yeah, great. Come on up to the Tower Records parking lot on Sunset where there's 25 of us dressed like Steve Martin doing, you know, you're a wild and crazy guy. Uh -huh. I win that and go to San Francisco and I meet the Western half of the United States at the boarding house. And I win that. And the finals are at the comedy store with the entire country represented. I'm one of six. Steve Martin is there. Carl Reiner is there. And the winner, the payoff is the tonight show spot. And I do my thing. And my, my twist on it was I came out, white suit arrow through the head no pants with boxers that said abc news brief uh -huh. so i figured i'd add my joke and the guy i was up against that i thought was my competition played banjo so well and looked like steve i thought there's no way right he does his bit i do my bit it's a tie between me and this guy from nashville that looked like steve steve martin comes on stage and he's holding our wrists like a ref in a boxing match and he holds up the other guy's hand okay. that guy wins i lose three months later i'm watching the tonight show and johnny goes uh we get we have a guest tonight uh you know and steve martin comes out and he's out for about 30 seconds and you realize it's not steve the real steve comes out bound and gag yelling this guy's an imposter 
that guy goes away. We never hear from him again. And that was my first taste at showbiz. And you were, you were like, what, 20 something? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was 27, 28. But what and somebody saw that and said, hey, can you do that on a cruise ship? Can you do stand up on a ship? But wait, what would have you done if you had won this? Because then you would have been on The Tonight Show, but you didn't have an act. Well, I would do kind of what that kid did. The whole bit was to pay Steve Martin's movie off the jerk that was coming okay. out. And it was just a sight gag. But I, I certainly would have come up with something. And then so what I what I wound up doing initially after that, and this uh -huh. is in the height of all the singing comedy telegrams, remember back in the day, Dancing yeah. Bears and Roller Skates? Yeah. So I did a Steve Martin look-alike, sound-alike comedy telegram where you, Michael, would hire me to make fun of somebody. And I would get all the information and I would go wherever they are, uh, a bank, an office. I actually stopped a wedding once as Steve Martin, arrow through the head, white suit. Hold on. I don't think this is right. And do a little Steve Martin thing. And there was a guy in the audience at a restaurant who came over after I just did this Rickles kind of riff. And he goes, that's very funny. Can you do ships? And I said, sure. And that's how I got on a cruise ship. Then and I'd then, come on as Steve and then I'd do my whole act after that, which I developed over time. But your act was basically kind of like making fun of Steve or was it all Well, no, you quickly, no, I, I had some comedy ideas, <laughs> but what I realized as soon as I got on the ship, 70% of the material comes from being on the ship. Right. If, I don't know if you've ever worked ships, but no. Oh, there's so much material. It's such a, it's such a ripe group, and then, you know. It's so interesting. You never even did the comedy clubs. Like you really came up your own way. I really did. I, I did a few because of that little bit of notoriety, but the cruise ships were a better paying gig. You got to see the world uh -huh. and you really felt like you were in the business because you had a band behind you. Generally, there was an opening act. Uh -huh. The only downside was if you didn't do well, you'd have to see these people for the next three days, four days, seven days. But how many? But I, I loved it. How many shows would you do? on a, a, So you were like, let's say it was a seven day tour. How many shows would you do? Two. That's it? Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would do the three and four day cruises down to Ensenada and back. Uh -huh. And so I would do welcome aboard show. I would be the headliner. I'd come out and do my hour. Uh -huh. And then they, they said, you can do anything you want on Sunday night. So I'd go in the back lounge and then just try stuff. And that's really where you kind of learned what's funny, what's not. So I got to do my God, for anybody listening that remembers the cat skills in those old days where mm -hmm. you just work, well, clubs today, you go out and work material. I could go in that back room and I would go on at midnight and the buffet would start at midnight. And my goal as a performer was if I could keep people from getting up and leaving my show to go eat again, then I realized I had some pretty good material. So I would do an hour and a half, two hours in the back room. Wow. But the moment that really, maybe this is where you're headed, that launched my career was in the middle of the cruise, they had a passenger talent show. And uh, on one of these cruises, the cruise director came up to me and said, hey, can you fill in and host the passenger talent show? I have other things to do. Uh -huh. And he meant that as a verb. I mean, this guy was, <laughs> he was all over the ship, just right. <laughs> you know, going okay. after whatever moved, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and I said, well, what do I do? And he goes, well, these people sign up throughout the week and then we turn them loose at midnight. And they do whatever they do. Think America's Got Talent. And uh -huh. I said, well, what would you like me to introduce them? Put a little show together. Go at, at 11 o'clock at night. Get with the piano player. And you figure out maybe an order. I said, well, uh -huh. okay. Sounds like fun. So I did that. And I'm telling you, Michael, I had more fun doing that than any stand-up. Really? Because I had a chance to talk to somebody. Where are you from? What do you do? Right? And then right. you turn them loose. But because, and it's not unlike warm-up, where someone else is the star, where someone else has the focus you just set them up and turn them loose yeah i had an 85 year old woman get up and tap dance to the lord's prayer uh -huh. 
You don't need to top that. <laughs> How do you? Right. I mean, I had everything, right? So I started doing this, and at about at the same time, I was doing warm-up for a game show. We're going to go way back now, a dance show called Dance Fever. Yes, quite which is again fever. like these dancing shows, but way back, right? Solid Gold and Dance Fever. Those that's the two it. Shows. Yeah, and they had three celebrity judges, and they would judge the dancers. And the cue card woman comes up to me on a commercial break, and she goes, "You know, NBC is uh, going to do a morning game show, and they want somebody new, somebody unknown, someone that no one's heard of." I said, "That's me. I, I'm in the, middle of the ocean. No one knows me." <laughs> she goes, "Do you have a tape?" I said, "No, nah, I got a tape. Sure, I got a tape. I got no tape." So the very next cruise I go back on, I put 2,500 bucks on my credit card and I go buy that two piece video system where you had to buy that base unit, the head unit. Mm -hmm. And I brought that on the ship. I put it on a tripod. I put it back by the soundboard and I pushed record and I videotaped every one of these passenger talent shows that I hosted and then cut everybody out and then just kept my moment. Right. My first demo tape was six minutes of me doing that. Right. So this woman, at Dance Fever says, get me that tape. I'll get it to NBC. The two people in charge were um, Jake Talbert and Brian Franz. They were mm -hmm. the presidents of daytime television NBC. So she sends them the tape and I get a call. My agent and I come in. I have an agent at this point. And they go, do you know why you're here? And I said, yeah, Mary Steck was nice enough. I said, no, it's the guy at the end. I said, what do you mean? The old guy. Yeah, what about him? Well, there's this charming old man that I'm introducing and playing with. And he grabs the mic out of my hand and goes, you must be saying something very funny, but I don't get it. Well, it's a huge laugh. And the NBC exec said, the fact that that guy got the laugh and you let him have his moment mm -hmm. and you didn't come back over with one more ad lib of your own tells me you got a sense of how to host. It's about making someone else shine. He said, we can teach you how to host a game show. What we can't teach you is the instinct to make someone else look better. Were you I, aware I mean, of I, that I, though? I mean, we, well, not really. Just, yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I got better at it and, and I realized the, um, the sneaky joy of this is that if you get a laugh, then get out of the way, put right. the onus back on them. When you do a but talk they, show, but when they yeah. said this to you, you're like, "Oh my God, I I've been doing this all along and I didn't realize this." Or have, were you consciously doing that? You, you know, I I think there was sort of a, a Midwest polite mentality, kind of how I was raised: don't interrupt, right. all that kind of stuff. They can kind of goes part and parcel. Uh -huh. Just being, just being, I don't know. I, polite's the perfect word. My dad was from Missouri. My mom was from Minnesota. We kind of raised in a polite family. Right. I just thought that was the right thing. But I also realized that, boy, you could use this to your advantage, right? Mm -hmm. You know, let them shine. And that I, I work at it to this day, trying to be a better listener and try to be better at picking my moments. That's right. how it started. That's literally how my career started. Out and at then, sea. So then what happened with that audition then? So I got the pilot. I got the pilot for NBC, mm -hmm. morning talk show. My very first time on a lot is at NBC, and I'm parked six spots down from Johnny Carson. He's got a white Corvette. His license plate said 360 guy, which mm -hmm. I thought was a clever license plate, all-around guy. Yeah. I'm six spots down from Carson. I just got off the boat. I am so far from showbiz. I'm walking on the set. We shoot the pilot. At the same time, they're just about finished with The Tonight Show. We shot across the hall. Mm -hmm. Very little security back in the 80s. I open the door, and I walk in. And I sit next to Gregory Peck. Hello, Michael. Going, show is so easy. Yeah. He goes on. He comes out. I say, hi. Carson walks by, gives me one of these. Everybody walks out, and we all go home. Kicker of the story is, pilot did not get picked up. Right. Um, 
But the production company, Reg Grundy, who did all of those shows back in the day, Sale of the Century and Scrabble, liked what I did and put me on retainer for a year to develop something else. But did they, and I never even asked you about on Mike and Maddie, like, yeah. did they coach you at all before you start doing this? Is there, did they rehearse you or is it like, well, this is who we, this is who we hired, let him do his thing? It's a good question. Uh, in the game show world, when we were getting ready to do a game show, they would remind me that, you know, the first half of the game is fun and Q&A and, and get some joy out of these contestants and root for them. And then when it shifts to the bonus round, there really needs to be a shift in tone. This money is serious money and this can yeah. change someone's life. And this is not the place to go for a joke. Let's kind of shift the focus and, and really you know, be there for them and root for them and uh, console them if they lose and be happy for them when they win. So there was a little bit of that. Some of it, it's it, most of it's just learning, you know, where your beats are, getting well, in and getting out. What about Mike game and Maddie show or, or, you know, or, you know, home family, same kind of well, thing? Mike and Maddie was a whole nother <laughs> league because that was morning network everywhere in the country. Yeah. And I was working with someone, which I had never done. Mm -hmm. So I came in for the audition and did well. And the woman I had auditioned with, they had a deal uh, to put in place to put her on the air. Right. And as I was driving home, my agent called and said, I don't know what happened in there, but they now want to do the show with you and they're letting her go. I said, oh, wow. oh, well, don't give her my address. Yeah. And he said, we now have to find <laughs> a woman to pair up with you for this morning talk show. And I thought, well, how do we do that? So, well, Disney will set it all up because this is a Disney production. Mm -hmm. And I auditioned, and I auditioned's not even the right word. I sat down with 85 women and just said, how you doing? How you doing? And we just tried to see if there was any chemistry. It's like dating somebody. Is there is there a connection? Maddie. This, I had no, I'm sorry I have to interrupt, but this I had no yeah. idea about because yeah. it, it seems like, because they, they they sell a show to ABC. They go, it's going to be well, a morning yeah, show. Actually, let me back up. The uh, show is going to be in syndication for Disney, which they could syndicate across the country and do anything. ABC is not involved at this okay, moment. Okay, right. So they had a development deal with this woman. They passed on. They put me in the spot. Now they got to pair me up. They pair me up. Maddie and I had instant chemistry. Mm -hmm. And about an hour after her audition, they say, we love you both. Let's do it. So we shot a pilot. Right. At KHJ on Melrose, a $40,000 pilot. Right. I mean, that's about as cheap as you can get. And they took that pilot out and tested it. Mm -hmm. And it tested as high as Oprah tested back in the day. Right. ABC got wind of this and said, forget syndication, we'll put you on the air now. Right. And three months later, Maddie and I hit the ground running, not knowing each other, really. And what began a two-year, 535-episode run with someone I got to know every day because we shot literally every well five days yeah. a week monday through friday so that's got to know each other got to learn the whole thing i didn't know that was the origin because they're basically yeah. saying okay we're selling a morning tv show we don't know who's yep. in it yet but it, if you like the idea of a morning tv show here's we're gonna audition you know back in the day the they were handing out these <laughs> yeah they were handing these talk shows out pretty regularly it was kind of the thing uh, fairly inexpensive to produce i guess although we had quite a budget this was morning network this was a big official show that we traveled and uh, there was a nice budget for a big beautiful set and everybody you know got what they needed to pull this off and then celebrities would catch on and come on and we had our favorites and you, know, you got to sit down there with your idols and 
there yeah. was a little pushback. The fact I want to talk to you about this because ABC was adamant that this show was not a comedy show in the morning. You're taking people's time away from them and you got to give them something. They got to feel they haven't wasted their morning. So there's always a recipe. There's always something to mm -hmm. learn from. Right. And I came in kind of hot with this idea of comedy and they're going, no, people don't want to laugh in the morning. And I went, well, <laughs> I got to disagree with you there. But wow, you know, Max yeah. Muchnick and Max and who? Max and Dave, David, right? David Cohen, yeah. Yeah, who created they, a little show called Will and Grace? Right. So they were the first writers on Mike and Maddie, and they it was just overkill. They didn't we didn't need that much horsepower from them. They were so talented, they went on yeah. and did what they did. Right. But I, I think because they brought me on, they certainly liked my sense of humor and thought this would be a nice way to wake up in the morning. So eventually they embraced the humor as long as we balanced it with information. Yeah. And that show. It was Tamara Raw Tamara Rawlett. She was the producer. Started it. Uh -huh. She started it. And I guess her yeah. vision was Letterman in the morning, but Letterman had a show in the morning. Like, yeah. You know, so that's where you don't you don't want to go down that path and that kind of scared them. So they were very yeah. uh, it, it, part of this was wise that you let's not waste people's time in the morning. Let's yeah. find that balance of being entertaining and uh, and give them a takeaway. And yeah. we realized that I I certainly found that balance. Maddie yeah. and I started to feel our own, you know, beats there and where we could jump in. And we each got our own segments where we could shine. Yeah. Maddie was the greatest at locking in on a guest. And Carol Burnett came on and Maddie just started crying. That was that was what she, yeah. that's how she started the interview. It's because Maddie learned English, having come from Cuba on one right. of the last freedom flights out. Right. And now the show that she watched to learn English by the Carol Burnett show, she's sitting there and she starts yeah, crying. Wow. Well, you that's that's a great host, you know, yeah. showing your emotion, being interested. So yeah, I love working with her. Yeah, she's delightful. Yeah. And we had, yeah, I mean, I remember well. I remember taking, you know, going to your dressing room, you know, with index cards for some jokes. Here, what about this? What about <laughs> <laughs> and I um, wanted that so much. To me, that felt like Letterman. That felt like the Tonight yeah. Show. I, I I was aching for that. I don't remember the conversation I we had or what I fought for. I wanted Jonathan Winters on the show. And I had done warm-up on his sitcom. And they said, no, that's that's not our audience. And I went, what's not our audience? Funny? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I pushed. Six months later, Jonathan came on, and I got to sit with him, and I got to do what Johnny Carson did with him, which was give him a hat and then do a character. And I thought, this is – I'm in heaven. Yeah. This is as good as it gets. But it it, it took some pushing because they thought, who wants Johnny in the morning? So yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah. Who doesn't want to laugh in the morning? And be but before that, you were still also doing – before warm my up. warm up, and then had it, yeah. and so just so people know, so when you shoot a multi-camera sitcom, the audience they they bring in an audience, and the, and it could take I don't know, it could easily take five hours to shoot a half hour of television, twenty two minutes, five and a, yeah, five hours to shoot twenty two. Yeah, and so what's the audience doing while they're resetting the scenes or the actors are changing? Well, I've got a lot of stories. Some uh, yeah. I had a guy die once, what? and I just thought he was taking a nap. Yeah. Uh, I kept looking up going, God, I don't, you know, a comic wants everybody <laughs> engaged. Right. And he's just, eh. and at the end, he's not leaving. Everybody, the bus is gone and they, they, they cart him out and he, he died on the way to the hospital. I guess they revived him. Then he died. What show is this? Uh, women in prison. I don't remember. I don't remember women in prison. Sure. I'm sure you do. <laughs> uh, it was a sitcom with uh, Wendy Jo Sperber and uh -huh. uh, Peggy Cass, you know, uh -huh. an all-star lineup. Blake Clark played the warden. Yeah. And it was a sitcom about women in prison. I know. And I was the warm-up. So then, I, I did all of those types of sit. I mean, I did, I did big ones. I did shows you'd know. I, yeah. uh, 
gosh, uh, Mr. Belvedere is where I started. Yeah. And uh, it's really where you learn, you know, I don't know, a comic that's got five hours, unless you're talking maybe Leno, but, you know, you do your act, but then you have to figure something else out. And that's where these hosting chops came in. And, you know, you're, you're like a surgeon on call. The moment the bell stops, then I start talking to the audience and then they're ready to go again it could be right in the middle of a joke you're telling it doesn't matter i'm here to serve yeah. and they would do again for those uninitiated maybe 15 scenes in a sitcom of 50 pages 60 pages they'll do each scene two or three or four times mm-hmm. the actors want another shot at the scene maybe they've got another joke laid in or maybe they want another angle and each time they do it that audience has to be geared up not only reminded hey where were we right and sometimes literally reminded because the lens went down and we have a 30 minute stop between scenes seven and eight. Yeah. That's happened. So you keep them entertained. And it's a, it's I think actually, that was the greatest uh, training for me I, anyway. It, it must have been because it's actually a really important job because, you know, as a TV writer, we want the audience to have, they need the energy. They got to keep really giving do. it to the audience. And it's the warm-up job to keep them engaged and not like wanting to leave and, and, and get bored and zoned out. And you Well, I'm glad up. you said that because oh, very important. Yeah. the writers will come to me and say, how's the audience tonight? Or if the show's not going well, they're going, hey, can't you do anything? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll fault. certainly try. <laughs> Sometimes it just wasn't that funny. Or the reverse is true. I have right. a Dick Van Dyke story that is painful. I, uh, he did a sitcom with his son called Van Dyke and Company. Mm-hmm. And Walter Barnett produced, and they brought me in because I had a nice reputation of being the warm-up guy. Yeah. So I came in and did the pilot, and it's like taking candy from a baby. I'm killing. And right. Walter Barnett walks up to the rail, you know, because I'm about three feet up, audience. Mm-hmm. And without stopping, he says, uh, just pull it back a little bit, and then keeps walking. And a uh, couple scenes later, more laughs. He goes, uh, less, just less. Went, okay. <laughs> now we're like five scenes in. And he pulls me up, and he goes, uh, stop telling jokes. I'll tell you why later. I went, okay. oh my God. So now I'm just talking to the audience. And I happened to get one guy in the audience that was a mortician. I go, what do you do for a living? Mortician, big laugh. He right. looks at me like, what are you doing? People right. are dying to get in. I go, well, right. it's not, he's right. doing it. At the end of the show, he goes, uh, I got to let you go. Uh, Dick is not happy. Dick Dick Van Dyke's not happy. Yeah, yeah the, the show's just not coming together like he had hoped and there's a lot of laughter when we're not shooting yeah so uh I'll, I'll keep you posted so the next week they bring somebody else in and it's awful right so they bring me back but he said okay you can come back but you can't do the puppet bit <laughs> and you can't do these three jokes i had right. some i had some killer bits that i know right. i could rely on and i so i finished the six episodes i did when i did five of them so but it's it's actually warm-up is a pretty high-paying job you like it's a it pretty was. desirable job um, it was crazy i'd never seen that kind of money uh for one night i'm not doing the clubs i'm not on tour and i'm not only in town um i'm getting union money so now uh, i'm getting my sag card and i uh, Wait, then they try to job? take it away from us that's, What's a union? That? that's a union job i didn't it, know that. it was after i fought for it it was then oh. it wasn't then a bunch of us got together and went to the union and said hey we're a pretty important part of this production mm. they agreed actors stood up for us and uh. spoke on our behalf and we wound up getting union money which is how i got vested and right. but I, I mean i don't think i'm speaking out of school uh, the warm-ups could range back in the day it was 800 for the night mm. and um five or six thousand a night was not uncommon at the end yeah 
Yeah, I know that for sure. And then how so do you, you knock out a couple of those a week and all of a sudden you're going, I, 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 you know, I'm rich. Show business. Well, show business is great, you know, but you're <laughs> also not on camera and you're thinking, I remember having shows on the air and then going back and doing warm up and candidly thinking, uh, you know, kind of a step back. And uh, a producer said to me, I, I wouldn't look at it that way. He said, do you, do you like doing it? And I said, I love doing it. He goes, you're good at it. I said, well, okay. And he said, that's, that carries a lot of weight. You know, if people are going to see you work, let them see you doing what you do well. And I, I kind of reframed that and, and got back into the warm up mm -hmm. and wound up doing a little show with people that you probably, uh, or one actress that was probably everyone's favorite or has been. Um, and that was Betty White. Yeah. And I, I came back and sure. did hot in Cleveland and did 135 episodes. I spent 135 Friday nights with Betty White. Yeah. She's lovely. Yeah. I worked with her on an animated show. She couldn't be, she was so lovely. Sweet. Um, right. Yeah. And, and yeah. gives you everything you'd hope. Oh, oh, for like a, such a pro. Um, I remember I've told this story. I was doing an animated show. So I was directing her and she was, I don't know, um, maybe 15 feet in front of me. And I'm at, you know, I'm at a table. I get my script. I'm giving her notes and she's delivering. She's great. But after a take, I'd give her a note. Can you try it like this, like that? And she was very pleasant. <clears throat> but after a few sec, or a few minutes, she stops and she goes, I'm sorry, dear, but you're going to have to yell. My hearing isn't as good as it used to be. And I said, if you think I'm yelling at Betty White, you're out of your fucking mind. Uh, and she just lost it. She loved that. She was so fun. I mean, she's like, <laughs> she, she was so When you sweet. would see her on the set, it, 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 the room changed. Everybody was oh, yeah. aware. It's like the Pope walked in. Yeah. And the, the, the little ad libs that she would throw off to the side, which having done 135 of them, I realized she had a lot to go to. But the mm -hmm. first time I heard a couple of these, for instance, cameras rolling, awkward pause. Betty looks up and goes, you know, if no one's saying anything, it's probably my turn. Yeah. That kills. <laughs> Director goes, we have to go back. Betty goes, how far the pilot? So you get about 50 of these ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> there was a scene where they, once a season, they would pair the girls up. Wendy Malick, Jane mm -hmm. Leaves, Valerie Bertinelli, they're all single as Betty was. So they would have a a date show where all the women got paired up and the girls paired each other up with dates. So they picked Carl Reiner as Betty's love interest. And there's a scene where she and Carl kiss. Uh -huh. And, you know, crowd goes nuts. And then we stop. And Carl's 15 feet from me. And I had worked, I had interviewed Carl on Mike and Maddie. In fact, I, Carl, I let, I let him cut my tie, which is an old Johnny Carson thing I'll get back to in a minute. Uh -huh. But I said, hey, Carl, you just kissed Betty. What was that like? And he goes, without missing a beat. Oh, it's unbelievable. She has her original teeth and all, and her, she gets all of her own teeth and her original tongue. <laughs> and he says that right. at 90 without missing a beat. And you right. saw these two connecting right as the old guards it's of the business legends. but how did you get that first uh that first warm-up job i mean walking into that is not is hard yeah even I was, getting the was, opportunity to do it is hard yeah i go back to the cruise ship i was doing warm-up on the ship uh -huh. and a producer for jeopardy was on who worked for Mer griffin and they were uh -huh. doing this dance show and she goes can you get me a tape then by that time i had uh -huh. and uh, that's uh, so the very first warm-up i did was dance fever and one of the celebrity judges was christopher hewitt who said to me on a break oh dear lad you should come do our show and i did i did that show for seven years wow wow and then and that you, kind of mushroomed into other warm-ups because you've had a really unconventional path into into hollywood i would think yeah yeah but my my sights were set early on i saw that carson did a game show and then a talk show and i went well that that works for me so let uh -huh. me see if i can get a game show let's see if i can get a talk show and I've accomplished those. I, I, 
Certainly. But you were never a weatherman. <laughs> no, no, I never. I never. <laughs> what happened? Do I look the part? Was that a slam? <laughs> like, is that a quiet rider slam? A, Letterman yeah. was a well weather. He was. Yeah, I mean, it seems like yeah. that's another. As long as you're in front of the camera, I think. Well, well in the LA market, you couldn't get past Fritz Coleman. Right? Yeah, right. He did that for forty years. Who also yeah. did stand up? And now I never yeah. wanted to do that. And the opportunity to act had come up a number of times. And mm -hmm. with all humility, I just said, no, I, I, I don't think I would be good enough. I, I knew what I liked. I, I knew I liked. Uh, talking to people basically but you've done and some acting i figured i'd just stay in my lane but you've done acting i know you have because you were an episode that i wrote <laughs> yeah. you were well, an episode of lois and clark <laughs> yeah i don't I, that's not on the resume uh, <laughs> i i just don't you know those got handed to you you know because you were on the air doing something else i got right. to present at the emmys because we were on the air and maddie and i handed oprah mm -hmm. her emmy award and we're going down the elevator with oprah and she's singing our theme song. It turns out she was a fan of the show, kind of yeah. was our godmother. Because when Mike and Maddie went across the country, we aired in Chicago after her. So she was on at 9. We were on mm -hmm. at 10 a.m. And we were an instant hit because we followed Oprah. Yeah. And so much so that Oprah became a fan of the show and invited us to everything. I, I went to the Oscars with Oprah. I sat at dinner at Spago's with Oprah. I mean... With were there she any call of the now? guests? No, she, she does no, not she call doesn't. now. Were there any, because um, you had a lot of great guests on Mike and Maddie, were there any great that you were in touch with that you kind of became friends with? Yeah, George Hamilton, uh, Robert uh -huh. Wagner. Robert uh -huh. Wagner is about as cool as anybody gets. Yeah. And I, he asked me to MC the charity event that he was doing. It was a Jimmy Stewart relay race. It was a celebrity race in Griffith Park. I said, I'd be happy to. And he goes, do you want to play golf? And I went, well, I, I, I don't I, I can play, I can hack around, but he's like a member at Bel Air. Uh -huh. And I, uh, I said, well, yeah, maybe that would be nice, you know, and I'm just pushing him off because I didn't want to embarrass myself. So the next year I do the event again and he goes, are you still playing golf? And I went, yeah. And he goes, are we going to play? And I went, he goes, do I have to send a car for you? And I went, <laughs> no, uh, RJ is what he wanted to be called. I said, I just didn't feel like I could play. Right. When I first met him, this is so Robert Wagner, I, I'm standing there with a buddy of mine and I see him coming and we have to go to the stage and he comes up and he takes his arm and he puts it through mine and goes, Michael, walk with me. I mean, so old school, right. Michael. Right. So, how are you, my friend? I'm oh. good. Thank you, RJ. Uh, yeah, there were, there were idols. I got a chance to meet. Um, uh, God, I met President Carter had retired, but I got right. to, do Habitat Humanity with him and sit down and build a house and talk to him about life and uh, every musician you ever heard of. How yeah. about the artist Jewel made her first appearance on Mike and Maddie? We put I her on I did not there. know that. I remember James Brown. Yeah. I remember walking past James, James Brown. Brown the sure. Um, Leanne Rimes made her first appearance with us. Really? Well, maybe, I mean, uh -huh. I wasn't there for that. Or I don't no. know. Um, yeah, that's so funny. Wow, that's, a, that's amazing. Yeah, James Brown. Do you, so you were there for James? Yeah. Yeah. And and he sat down and he said something that wound up on entertainment tonight that night. He said the music business is funded by drug money. <laughs> everybody went, did he just say that? And all of a sudden now we're, you know, hard news reporters. We felt like, I don't know, I don't know, Charlie Rose or something. We just we got we got a scoop. I don't remember. We just that. stumbled into it. And then yeah. how did you how, like how how what was it like just like uh you know rolling? I mean, I know you had you had must have talking points on you know, when you're interviewing guests, but. no oh boy, you're so right. Uh, you know, a celebrity gets interviewed the night before and then they have bullet points. 
Mm-hmm. And the next day, you kind of spit out those questions so they could comment on what they were pre-interviewed about. But, you know, in conversation, sometimes things go another way. But as yeah. you know, the producer's job is to keep you, the host, on track. And we had, God bless her, Kathy, Kathy. Palmerino, I think her yes. name was. Yes, Is that her name? I well, don't remember. She had remember Kathy. Yeah. She had interviewed Robert Goulet the night before, and she had this list of questions. And she's just behind camera with this and she's doing this and i see her and i'm ignoring her because something better is happening and we get to the commercial and she goes michael you did not ask any of those questions what what happened what's wrong and i said did you hear what robert goulet was saying she goes no what well i said the the interview took a path down a different road there was he had mentioned his father and i noticed he'd paused almost if he was going to tear up Uh and i i thought there's something more to explore there. And I said, what about your dad? And he said, on his deathbed, his dad said, Robert, come here. And Robert comes in and he goes, son, you're meant to sing. Go do that. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I got chills. I got chills hearing that now. That was not yeah. on the cards. It was following the arc of a conversation. And sometimes these producers feel maybe they're not doing their job because we didn't ask those questions. Mm-hmm. But interviewing people is really about a conversation. So we had those moments where we went off the card and I think made some made some friends there, had some great, there's some great interviews. I'm very proud of Patty LaBelle sat down with us and admitted that her three sisters had all died of cancer and she wasn't sure she was going to see 50. And she yeah. starts to tear up and we're, we're going, she goes, I must like you guys. You know, we're six minutes in. Talk yeah. shows, you get six minutes, seven yeah. minutes, maybe two segments, maybe 15 minutes. And I think we did some nice work and met, met some people in a very finite amount of time. Hey, it's Michael Jammin. If you like my videos and you want me to email them to you for free, join my watch list. Every Friday, I send out my top three videos. These are for writers, actors, creative types. You can unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm not going to spam you. And it's absolutely free. Just go to michaeljammin.com slash watch list. I remember those morning meetings. We talk about the show, and yeah. I remember seeing in the back. Because I'm young; it's my first real writing, you know. Job, and they they come, they, they call me a producer because that way they wouldn't have to pay me writer's guild. <laughs> so they said you're a producer, but I'm like, I'm not a producer. I can write stuff. But but I remember thinking, how does it, everyone here know what to do? Like I I really mm. had no idea. It was um I was like I was in awe of the whole thing. How does everyone here know what to do? But aren't you? But as the more you hung around, it it kind of demystifies itself after a while, right? Yeah, but there's also, in, to some degree, yes, but it was also like, you only get one shot. It wasn't like mm. you get to rehearse. It was like, you better get this right. We're on live TV. You know, we're not live, but we're on TV. And live to we're take, not doing yeah. it again. We're not doing it again. So, uh, yeah, that no was if, if you, yeah, if you concentrated on that, it would paralyze you. What I found starting to do this was that how in the world can we talk to somebody for six minutes and get anything out of it? That mm-hmm. seems yes. too short. Yes. And you you learn to ask. There's a great quote by Blaise Pascal. He's a French philosopher. And the quote is, mm-hmm. if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. Right. And it right. talks about the science of the art of being brief. Then you learn that in the talk show world where you need to be concise and you take away all the stuff in the same way Jerry Seinfeld would take out a word that mm-hmm. doesn't work in a joke. A good interview has become very... Um, there's no Sophie's choice there. You know, you 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 start 
cutting things away because it's not going to make it and you you stick with what works at that at that moment so you be, become careful you become good editors you know of yourself as you but interview it, but i found how how it was so it was so ethereal and so mm -hmm. uh, i compared it to cotton candy you would do it and it was gone and then the next day we had to do it all over again yes right, right? yeah the sheer volume yes. of cranking out a, an hour a day for two years was mind-boggling to me but yeah i didn't have to do it myself i had help yeah you know? and i, I just had to show up refreshed the minute you recorded i remember thinking all the producers like you know well you're screwed you got to do this you're done all that work you did is over now and you have to do more i mean yeah it doesn't end um, yeah and we we went live to tape we wouldn't stop unless there was something drastic happening right. and once in a while we would tape two shows on a thursday so we could travel on a right. friday to go to another town and maybe do something live there right unlike the show i did with christina ferrari which was two hour two hours live a day there there's no stopping i mean what goes wrong you see right. which was a whole other level of uh fun because there's it, a it, it's too late there's Set an it. art though to getting people to be vulnerable like you're saying on television right yeah. now you have six minutes yep. and and then like sometimes you'll see it where an interviewer just like they're, they're they're reading the question they're just waiting to get the next question they're not really well, in it you know true were you there for charlie sheen <laughs> I probably would Charlie have Sheen comes on and he's oh. nervous and he's sitting there and he's looking around. I go, what's wrong, Charlie? Because I don't know. And I, and no one's given me anything to say. So what do you need? Uh -huh. A cup of coffee would be nice. So I went over because we had a, you know, we had a big set. We had a working yeah. kitchen. Yeah. So I got him a cup of coffee and we sat down. I go, anything else? He goes, well, well cream would be nice. So I went back and got him <laughs> cream. That was such a fun interview because he, he really was authentic and he really was nervous. And we just played it yeah. where you had some other guests that were shall we say just a little more um controlled and didn't want to open up and they were there to promote something you know that's what a talk show does is we promote you doing whatever you're doing and what were you what were you thinking when you're like oh i'm just tanking here this, this is no this is the not opposite well. oh no i'm thinking let's do more of this now i felt oh now we're doing letterman now we're doing a talk show where things are off the rails and uh -huh. there's nothing and the big camera has to whip out of the way because uh -huh. no one had planned that i lived those moments where something went wrong but what, when yeah. someone wasn't comfortable on what about that like well where, where it wasn't anything. scripted heavily scripted where you right. would get something that wasn't planned i know oh, that's I, fine i mean like yeah. when a guest is clearly oh you know, not engaging. They're just, you know, they're struggling. <laughs> well, you'd see the producer going like, let's jump ahead. Well, let's jump ahead to what? To what? What well, do I jump to? You know, we could tighten it up and, and uh -huh. then the next guest can go longer. We okay. had a little bit of an accordion. Uh -huh. um, you know, you, you, you find a way. There's a, <laughs> there's a way to get in there somehow, some way, but they're not all, some are better talk show guests than others. Yeah. You know? And, and some come in. We had comedians at Richard Jenny on who I went to his dressing room and I go, what do you need? And he gave me five setups, uh, you know, hot dog, car, couch, uh, whatever it was. Right. So he knew all the jokes he'd go to and he just laid them in there. Would you write um, those down or do you on a card or you just No, that kind of stuff was just yeah, they they certainly had them on a card. But uh, when we when we got a comic on, I really felt, oh, my God, I got to I got to kick up my game here because this is. This is really what I want to be. I mean, this is I idolize you, you men and women that had yeah. come on. You know? There really is. So a Carl Reiner art. comes on, uh -huh. and there's a very famous episode of the Tonight Show where Carl Reiner comes on and says to Johnny, "You know, I never make the best of the Tonight Show. I never make it." And he goes, "I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to be part of those clips at the end of the year." Yeah. And Carson's going, "Like, okay." And he goes, "You know, you're you're a great dresser." Johnny goes, "Oh, thank you." And he goes, "Stand up if you don't mind." 
And he goes, okay. So Carson's standing up and he's looking at his tie and he goes, the tie's not right, however. And he pulls out a pair of scissors and he cuts off Johnny's tie. Right. Johnny didn't know it. Fred DeCorvita had said to Johnny, hey, just don't wear your best clothes tonight. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, God. So he cuts the tie, right? Uh-huh. At, at the end of our interview with Carl, I said, hey, there's a moment you had with Carson, and I, I would just be thrilled if we could recreate this. And he doesn't, know where I'm, he doesn't know where I'm going with this. I said, there was a moment where you you cut Johnny's tie. And he goes, yes, I remember that. And I said, can I? And he goes, oh, no, no, no. My wife gave me. And I went, no, no, I don't want to cut your tie. Would you cut my? He goes, I'd love to cut your tie. And he stands up and makes a production and cuts my tie. Right. And I have that tie cut with an autograph framed in my office. Wow. wow. It was my moment of... I mean, those are the big moments, right? Meeting your idols. Yeah. Like like Jonathan Winters, I, I assume people listening know Johnny, remember Johnny, mm -hmm. the greatest improv artist mm -hmm. ever. And Robin Williams was a fan of his. Yep. So I get to do warm up on a sitcom called Davis Rules. Remember that? With know. Bonnie Hunt? No. Yeah. How do I he know won that? an Emmy for that. Okay. Jonathan Winters did. So Jonathan Winters, Bonnie Hunt, uh, the kid... Giovanni Rabisi. Yep. Wow. So they would have a script. John enters kitchen. Dot dot dot. <laughs> Popcorn on couch. Because he. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do with this maniac? So he would start. He'd go off. Uh, roars of laughter. But he, Jonathan, loved the audience. So he comes up to me. Maybe we're a half hour in. I'd never met Jonathan Winters, and he walks by the rail, and without stopping says say to me, Bing, how's your golf swing? And he keeps going. And as he's about eight feet away, I go, Bing, how's your golf swing? And he goes, well, well, well. And he's, he does Bing Crosby. Uh -huh. Well, at the end of the show, I go up and say, hey, I, I, I can't believe you're even here. And I can't believe I got to meet you. And he goes, hey, he goes, that was fun. He goes, I love doing that kind of stuff. He goes, anytime you want to throw me something, let's do it. Uh -huh. So this is, this is taking a pitch from Kershaw. This is the best yeah. of the best of the best, right? So the next week, it's a sitcom. You know the format. It's going to be a four-hour night. It's going to be stops and starts. And Jonathan is just sitting there like a little kid, like waiting to play because he he does it, the acting he can do in his sleep, but it's the improv that he loves. So I'd catch his eye and go, excuse me. Yeah. Did you not invent lettuce? Is that you? Uh, yes, I invented lettuce. God, for 10 right. minutes. That um, happened for a year and a half. Right. So I got to play with him for, I don't know what it was, 52 episodes. Uh Wow. That's 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 meeting your idols and being uh, even more impressed than you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Yeah. How gracious of him. I mean, you know, that's so, very that's much. Fun. Yeah. But that's him. That's him. He loved the audience. And Bonnie Hunt was so great at navigating him back to the script, you know, without even seeing it. But the 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 show was funniest when it was off the rails because yeah. Jonathan Giovanni Ribisi, the actor, would look at him and he had a line. And then <laughs> there'd be this pause and they're going, uh, Giovanni, that's your line. He goes, yeah, yeah. Where, where, what's my line? Because <laughs> it's so far past what was written in the script. What's my line? <laughs> yeah, because Johnny had taken it out to the parking lot and then made a left down Ventura. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's so funny. So those warm-up days, I, yeah. I loved. And when I got out of it and then got a chance to come back into it, my ego aside that I'm not on the camera, I'm behind it. Well, and let's talk I about that, working. though. Let's, yeah. I mean, about, that must have been difficult for you, but I don't know. You did it anyway, you know. Well, it, yeah, it, it took about 10 minutes to get over myself. And then I'm standing in front of an audience getting a laugh. And I went, wow, this, this is pretty cool. <laughs> right? But did it? I, I mean, felt right back in the mix. That's the Hollywood roller coaster. I mean, you're up, you're down, you're up and down. I mean, yeah. Um, 
you know. Yeah, I naively that. thought one pilot, I'm on my way, I've got a TV show. That very first thing I did for NBC mm-hmm. didn't get picked up. And I went, oh, that that's showbiz. Yeah. Right? That's the up and low. So that's you, you learn right. to discipline yourself and um, be grateful for what comes your way, which mm-hmm. I, I, I think I've done. And I also wound up with some side hustles along the way, flipping mm-hmm. homes. And I got my real estate license and did that stuff on the side. Right. Not thinking I'd ever want to, boy, here's something revealing. Yeah. It's probably five years ago, Catholic church, Sunday morning. I'm sitting there and there's a woman in front of me with her husband. The husband looked like he had been beaten down. What's the old joke where they've taken the spine out? He's just been beaten so many years by being married to this woman. She's mm-hmm. eight o'clock, black dress, pearls, uh, Mrs. Kravitz from Bewitch. Does that help you? This is who yeah. I'm dealing with. Yeah. And looking around and she owns the room and it's church. So the priest says halfway through, turn to the person next to you or behind you and say, uh, you know, peace be with you. So I'm right behind her. So she turns and goes, what happened to you? And turns around, excuse me, what happened to you? Yeah. You used to be on TV. <laughs> turn around. This is yeah. mass. Listen to Padre there. She couldn't fathom the fact that I wasn't on the air and wanted to know how my life was, mm-hmm. not seeing me on Mike and Maddie anymore. And I said, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm okay. If things are good, just turn around. But she but, needed, uh, I didn't have the time to deep dive into the complexities and the ups and downs of this business, you know, but in it, church. But, but did it hurt though when she said that? No, I th- actually thought it was wildly funny because I've told uh, the story now for 20 years, so, or right. five years. So, yeah. But yeah, no, you, I, I, I loved being on the air and when, and um, certainly miss it. Uh, the skill set is still there. I think it's gotten right. better. You learn hosting is cumulative. Everything you do adds one more layer. But but I've certainly made peace with it and understand the business that, uh, I mean, I've, I've got a wonderful life because you, of because all the of ups it. and downs. Right. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that people say to me, you know, because I post a lot on social media and they go, well, you seem so humble. I'm like, because huh. I've been in the business for 25 years. That's why. I mean- how do you not, you're, every step of the way, you're getting humbled. I mean- How about, is there any bitterness in your, um, in your no, journey? Not really, because I never really thought I was going to get this far. <laughs> oh, that's you interesting. Know, I thought really? it was never my goal to, my, it was never my goal to have my own show and my own like uh, Norman Lear empire. I just wanted to be- As a, a writer, showrunner, producer, you mean? Yeah. No, I just wanted to write on, on TV show. I wanted to write on Cheers, to be honest. And Oh, wow. And, but I got- I, you know, when I broke into the business, Cheers was already well, you know, done. But I wound up uh, writing with many writers from who wrote on Cheers, and I mm. wound up shooting a show that was shot on the Cheers soundstage. And so, in my mind, I made it. Like, it, you know, but um, but certainly, well, what demons do you have as a writer, or what holds you back as a writer, whether you're working or not? Oh, and and is it is it amplified when you're not working? You know, it's easy to look at other people. Here's what it is. I, I had a friend, I was writing on King of the Hill and yeah. one, one of the other writers signed a big deal or something. And I was very jealous. And my other friend, he was older uh, on King of the Hill. And he, he said, um, he gave me a great piece of advice. He said, there will always be someone younger than you, less talented than you, making more money than you. Oh. Go, well, that, there it is. That, there it is. And so, uh, and that really, that I hung on to that for a long time. I feel like, okay, so um, it's easy to compare your career to somebody else, but to be honest, I'm so far, I'm so lucky that I have what I have. So uh, I'm not bitter. Because you anything. got this far, but it doesn't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it hasn't taken away the desire to do this again and work more or be where someone else is at this moment. 
No, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. As long as I get to keep working, I'm happy. I really yeah. am. Uh, and, and it's really, you know, it's funny when you're talking about, you know, doing warm up for these multi-camera shows, there yeah. are no multi-camera shows anymore. It, if you wanted that job today, good luck getting it. There are no shows. So well, how do you get that? <laughs> good luck in a couple of ways. Cause I have a friend of mine. You probably know Ron Pearson. Yeah. Ron, what about him? Ron's yeah. one of the best out there hands mm -hmm. down a great comic and a great warm-up yeah but he said the stuff he was doing three four five years ago in front of an audience he couldn't do now really the sensitivities of what you can and cannot say because he was pretty in front of a crowd he was pretty wholesome i remember because I, I worked with him very wholesome shows. it's just some things you can't say i got a, right. another buddy of mine ross schaefer who was a corporate keynote speaker who uh -huh. says even in the corporate world there's some things you can't say there was some some reference to women speak more than men on on a daily basis they just mm -hmm. they this is more verbose right and you because i i was told by the, the person hiring me well, i wouldn't say that <laughs> he was using it as a way women um really control the marketplace you know a woman will decide what you're ultimately going to buy that flat screen tv you got in your house you, yeah you got that because your wife said it's okay right. but that's actually sensitive to say now yeah but, well it didn't even occur to me you know yeah here's what some showbiz up for me and this happened here in Long Beach, a great little restaurant in Belmont Shore. On Thursday nights, they had a jazz piano player. It's this little uh, uh, French cafe, and I'd go in for a bite to eat. And this guy's playing in the corner, and there's maybe in a restaurant that seats 80, there's probably seven. And he would play, and it'd be nothing. So I'd give him a little something, something, right? We're all performers, and you're feeling for this guy. And I know when a song ends, so I give him a little more. And he takes his break and he comes over and sits next to me. And he goes, hey, thanks for trying to make that happen. I said, of course. He said, buy you a drink? Sure. We get to talk. And he goes, let me tell you my favorite story about supporting another actor or performer. He goes, I'm working a club down in LA and it's the same thing. Nobody's there. It's quiet. And I finish, I don't know, I'm 30, 40 minutes in and I finish a song and I hear, and he looks up to finally thank this one person that's acknowledging his talent. And it was a woman taking a cigarette out of a pack. Oh my God. Try to oh get the God. you know the tobacco into the filter. Yeah. He, he goes, boy, that if that isn't showbiz right there. Yeah, that is just when you think you made it at any level, you're gonna yeah. get humbled one you're more time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a, humility is a great trait anyway, I yeah. think. Yeah. As a, as an interviewer, as a host, as any anybody in the business, gratitude and humility will serve mm -hmm. you a long way, I think. Yeah. Right. It's uh, we're, yeah. You got to enjoy the ride. And I was told that over and over, enjoy the ride. And I didn't really quite oh, that's so true. Meant. Um, yeah. But then when it's when we did uh, we did Match Game, <clears throat> Match Game ninety eight. We shot at CBS. We shot on the same set that they do The Price Is Right. They just turned it around for us. Okay. And I would go in early and I'd leave late and I'd drive in and I'd see that CBS sign, you know, lit up. And I said, I I I I don't want to leave. And I know this is going to be over. Yeah. I know it's over because we're airing against Oprah at 3 p.m. on CBS. That's why I know it's over. Right. And we we did our 135 and it, it went away. But I never for a moment took that for granted. I loved every second yeah, of that really. knowing, hey, you know what? You could worry about it being over. But ultimately, hey, like you said, just enjoy this ride. I had uh, My best friend did the warm-up on it. It was the announcer in the warm-up. And we, we laughed ourselves silly. Right. And we shot seven a day. Game shows, you shoot a bunch. So we, we would shoot four, take a lunch break, and do three. Did, Did 135 you, episodes. Have you seen that movie Babylon yet with uh, Brad Pitt? I Brad couldn't get through it. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, about you, 20 minutes in, I went, man, 
No, oh, you might want to revisit it because I I loved oh, it. Yeah? it. It was about that. It was about knowing when your time is over, and it was so oh. it was so so crushing. I thought it was beautiful, but yeah, it, I I could see. Yeah, you need to stick with it a little bit, but I, I loved it. Yeah. Oh, what do you? Where do you think you are in the arc of your career? I think. Well, I mean, I think all of us. I think you hit a certain age in Hollywood, and yeah. you know. If I haven't already approached it, I'm I'm getting very close. It's funny uh, when you leave your demo, right? You have a birthday and you leave your demo. I would. There was an article. Uh, this is a couple. This is many years ago, probably ten or fifteen years ago. And I was uh, my partner. And I, we were taking over for a show. We we're running a show. It was Michael Eisner's show. And there's an article in the trades and in, in Variety or whatever. And it said veteran uh, TV writers, you know, Michael Jam and Steve Claren. And it was an article about us. And then I go, wow, when did I become a veteran? And then oh, wow. one, of the, one of the writers sitting next to me goes, uh, that's not a good sign. It means your career is yeah, coming to an end. Yeah, veteran was not a compliment. <laughs> not a compliment. <laughs> I remember sitting, I had just turned 40, and I was sitting in an office with an executive at Telepictures, I believe it was. And I was sitting there with my agent, Richard Lawrence, who has since retired. I've outlasted my agent. That's not uh -huh. good. And this woman who's in charge of production says, look, Michael, I know who you are, and we're fans, but here's the thing. Oh, boy. She goes, we're going to hire the person that looks like the person. We want watching us. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, okay. That can be a lot of things, but I can't be yeah. an 18 year old woman, right? Yeah. Whatever yeah. the demo was they were searching. Right. So that stuck with me that there are things, there are times, things you just can't change. Right. I, I sort of, I fit a certain demo and a seasoned host would be the category. And if that comes back, then, then great. You know, there's a show coming up this fall uh, where they're bringing back The Bachelor, but it's called The Golden Bachelor. Have you heard about this? No. So it's The Bachelor, produced by the same people, but it's for 60 and up. So the contestants will be 60 and up. Right. Called The Golden Bachelor. Right. Now, the so, thought is, well, maybe, you know, uh, people will value a, a, a more seasoned-looking uh, right. uh, picture there. <laughs> and maybe the host will come along with that. I don't know. <laughs> oh, so well, have you, what do you know? Probably not. It's going to be hosted by a 20-year-old? It's gonna, no, it's going to be hosted by the same guy that's doing the younger version. So I think they're getting it both oh, ways, right? They're going to get right. a younger host and an older demo. That's right. fine. You know, so you Jack to... mm -hmm. stepping down with Wheel of Fortune, that there's a lot of talk about who might slip in there. Yeah. And that yeah. ranges from his daughter. Mm -hmm. Pat Sajak has a daughter that could certainly do it. Vanna could do it. Ryan right. Seacrest, is, there's talk. Yeah. Whoopi said she wants it. Oh, wow. Tom Bergeron's name has been tossed around. Right. Mine's been tossed around, but it... Uh, but it's, I'm tossing it. I'm tossing the name yeah. around. <laughs> right. Hey, what about this guy? Right. <laughs> you know, I did Wheel of Fortune in Vegas. Uh, Harry Friedman, who produced it, yeah, came right. up with a live version of Wheel of Fortune. So back in 2000, we went to the MGM. They took over the lounge, which used to be Catch a Rising Star, mm. renamed it the Wheel of Fortune Lounge. And you got a chance to come in and oh, wow. play Wheel of Fortune and win prizes, cash and prizes. So it was just like the TV show, but it was not airing, but it was, it was live. Right. What made the show so fun is that unlike the TV show where you're screened for intelligence and the ability to play the game, uh -huh. this is a bingo ball that's pulled and now you're on stage. So we have three contestants that could be, well, you name it. In this case, it was a, um, a woman who'd had a little bit, uh, a guy who didn't speak the language. And it was it was as wild and as fun as you'd hoped it would be because they right. didn't understand the concept and the letters and some <laughs> did, didn't. We had this poor gal had the puzzle almost revealed. And it um, the, the, the answer was cassette deck and every letter was turned. Everything was revealed. 
except the sea. And she's staring at it. Right. And she just, she goes, cassette deck? Yeah. And the woman next to her goes, cassette deck, you idiot. <laughs> Which you'd never see on TV, right? No. Oh Gosh, that was fun. We oh did a, we did a half a year of that. Right. Every, we did three shows a day for six months. And so it's, it's, the, it's interesting. Yeah. So it's about, you know, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Enjoying and reinventing yourself, basically, constantly. Yeah, you know, um, uh, I think you're doing it. You're still writing. I'm out there. Yeah. I still I do a lot of corporate work, and I speak, you know, on on these uh, corp on this corporate circuit where a company hires you to come in and motivate their teams. Right. Speak to them about the ability to communicate. You know, salespeople that can speak well, managers right. that can uh, interpret a room are going to be more successful. So that right. message of really being a good host, uh, you know, active listening, teach them that so there's there's a lot of tools that overlay from our business to the corporate world when i share in front of a, a team of salespeople, last year i was the keynote speaker for the national association of automobile dealers uh, and you have a room full of salespeople whose yeah. life bread determines on whether they're going to crush that sale and they're talking about the rejection rate and i said yeah i hear you i said let me tell you a little story about sag after it 185,000 members at any given moment, 85,000% or 85% are unemployed. Right. And of the 15% that work, 1% make a hundred grand. So what do you do with the word? No. Yeah. Yeah. What's the answer? You, 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 Oh, this is my Amazon package just came. Oh. Uh, you know, you <laughs> leverage the rejection. You take an, um, an Olympic athlete who loses by a 10th of a second mm -hmm. and comes in second, yet they're gratified by that incremental win. So you you focus on these these positive gains as a as a writer as a performer and right. anything that you do, and then you don't let whatever success we've had you've had anybody has had uh, make you complacent. Um, Gary Kasparov, the grandmaster chess player, mm -hmm. calls it the gravity of past success. Yeah, you know, we can get weighted down by whatever we think we've had, and if you're done and don't want to work again, well then you can live in that place. Right. But if you want to be relevant and continue to work, then, you know, keep trying something, anything. Right. Jonathan Winters actually said to me the number of times he failed so miserably and bombed so horribly meant that he was trying. Right. Meant that he was still because you got to get out there and fail huge. And hearing Jonathan say that, so we'll stick around. I said, it's going to be a long night. I just read the script. I'll, I'll be failing here five yeah. hours. How funny. You know? He said, go for it. Don't. Well, go do it. Don't worry about it. And so this takes us to you. I know you have a course that where you teach kind of this. Yeah, I'm right? putting together a master class on hosting. Uh, you know, podcasts are pretty popular now. He says yeah. to Michael Jamin yeah. on the podcast. Yeah. Well, and you could go to YouTube and set up your studio like I did. I, you know, there's there's camera four. You know, I mean, uh, you, you can everything. Yeah, it uh, it's just a lot of free time during the lockdown. Wow. Uh, but I I realized. Go to YouTube, figure out how to set up your studio. Everybody's doing a podcast, but no one is teaching anybody how to host a podcast or the art of conversation is dying on our campuses with mm -hmm. with young folks that have learned to text. God bless you. I'm not an old man on my yawn yelling, you know, what are you doing? I'm embracing it. I get it. And I went back to my university a couple of months ago and spoke to the dean that I graduated with and from radio TV at Long Beach State. And said, I went through your curriculum and there's nothing there teaching kids how to communicate and interview. And he goes, yeah. He said, I, I, I agree. So I'm going to go back uh, to Long Beach State in the fall and teach this oh, masterclass on how to how to host. But it's also, I but think it will I can be overlay available. And, 
Say again? It will be available on your website too at some point, no? Yeah, you know, I'm, we're kind of fumfering out what this is going to look like, but I think I will do a version where, you know, we can release this. I'll do it obviously for the university, uh -huh. but another version where people can access it and maybe take something from it. Because yeah. I'm not stopping it. I mean, I, I, I love the art of this. And for me, it, again, as I said earlier, it is cumulative. I, I learned something from yeah. every conversation. You know, I, I, I say to people, ask somebody a question and then do something radical. And that is, shut up. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, listen to learn and not respond. What we learned in the television world is that you do have seven questions and you do have six minutes and you just want to spit out that to get closure on that segment. But mm -hmm. in reality, those never make for good conversations. Right. So regardless of the conversation you're having, people are aching to be heard. Everybody wants mm -hmm. to feel relevant. Everybody wants to feel that they're being paid attention to in any walk of life. So the next time somebody comes up to you, you, you might ask them something. You might look them in the eye and say, how you doing? And expect an answer. Wait for an answer. Yeah. That's the other thing we learned too, is the idea of leaving a, a little break and a little pause mm -hmm. yeah. in a conversation because somebody will say something, especially on television when the cameras are rolling. You might yeah. be surprised what you will get if you take one more beat. Yeah. Right? I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, there's a sometimes I'll, I'll watch an interviewer and I feel like there's a genuine lack of curiosity. They're just trying to get to, they ask me a question. They don't really care what the answer is. They're just, you say your part and then I'll say my part. And then you say your part. And you know, it's like, well, where's, are you having a conversation or, or you know, what is this? You know, more difficult so, than it, it appears. Yeah. You know, you do have time, time constraints and you do need to get something accomplished and you, I do, I do need to promote the movie or and the book mm -hmm. you're writing, Michael Jammon coming out soon, but you, but you, you can't, rush that and you you can't uh, get used to the sound of your own voice thinking that you're making a, a point here i did a lot of construction work and a lot of remodeling and I, I i i make a drywall analogy to conversation see how this plays out when i started doing construction and i put a piece of drywall up and you had two pieces together and you have a seam you take joint compound and you slather it on there and then you let it dry and then you sand mm -hmm. and now you've hidden the seam well, if you're doing it like I am, you're standing a lot because you want to make sure you cover that seam. You watch a, a great drywaller, somebody who can mask off a wall, and they use a very thin amount of set, and it goes right up that wall. And when it dries, there's so little compound left. Yeah, It's the same thing in conversation where you pull everything back to the very minimum, mm -hmm. and you're going to have a, a, a better finish. It's going to be there's less mud. Yes. There's less conversational mud. Yeah, it, it applies to many things, certainly yeah. to conversation. It's interesting. Yeah, it's it, it's clear to me that this is your this is what you know that, that yes. this is your art and and this and you know how to do it. And so yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about it. I love yeah. it. I, I really do. And it, it was you know you could say class clown because that's really what I, I mean. That's the easiest way to describe it in the second and third and the fourth and the fifth grade, butting in and getting a laugh, but also because I. I was raised by a family of teachers, my mom, my dad, my aunts and uncles. So yeah. the backstory of that was I was afraid of getting in trouble. So I try to find that balance right. of making a joke and not getting in trouble. Right. But I clearly remember sitting in college classes thinking, oh boy, you're losing them here, teach. Uh, <laughs> I think I need to jump in or take Let us to commercial or do something. <laughs> so I would jump in with some non sequitur. They'd look at it. I mean, yeah. it got so bad to where if we had an assignment, let's say a term paper, I would take the teacher aside on the break and go, look, I know you want a term paper here, but how about I do a, like an oral presentation on this? And he goes, 
what do you mean? I said, I'll get up and perform whatever this thing is. He goes, okay. (laughs) To me, that was my out. I figured, oh, I I got out of this. I I loved, I loved the performing side of it. I really, I have a a great admiration for, for what you do really, because it's, you, it's not just, you say it's class clown, but it's not, it's not really that it's really, hopefully at this point it's refined. Yeah. 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 Yeah, So there is an art to it. And that's why I still think it's valuable. I think it's valuable to teach it to this day. Mm -hmm. It's more now than ever where we don't have to communicate as much, where we don't have to get on the phone, where we don't see, especially during the lockdown, we didn't see each other at all. Yeah, yeah. But right. the, I, I think people who speak well and can communicate and be good, great listeners, not only will you improve your, your work life, but I would venture to say your relationships will probably get better if yeah. you take a moment to listen. Take a moment, yeah. Wow, Michael Berger, thank you so much for doing this. And for Michael Jammin, want- I, I hope we do this again. I hope I'd like so. to be on a show that you're writing on. <laughs> yeah, I'd like but to I don't want to act. Writing. Can you can you do something? Give me I'm that. Sure. Uh, give me a host kind of role. Yeah. Like, uh, God, how great was um, uh, what was the um, uh, who am I thinking of? The um, Jerry Shandling show who broke oh. all rules. Oh, was that it, one of the greatest? That was fantastic. I mean, fantastic. Yeah, Gary. The, yeah, there's Larry Sanders and the Gary Shandling. It's Gary Shandling. So both are amazing. That's right. God, That's right. So good. And he started yeah. off as a writer on uh, Sanford and Son. <laughs> when I got Mike and Maddie, we were at NAPTI in Miami promoting the show and went to Joe Stone Crab. And sitting in the corner was uh, Gary Shandling, who I idolized, hadn't met him. Yeah. And my only line was I went up to him and I said, I just want to say hello. I said, You're the reason I got Showtime. I mean, that's all I had, you know? Right. But he was literally the reason I got cable. Yeah. And got to know him a, a little bit, like anybody who you know yeah. you're a fan you just you just sit there and you're in awe of, of that yeah. that kind of mind so i he's certainly amazing. have my idols yeah he's yeah. amazing well thank you again well, thank you michael I, I appreciate that let's do let's get this strike over with and yes and, and work together sooner than later i hope so and let's get people uh i wanted to make sure people go find you uh, my, you know michaelberger.com sure. if they want to michaelberger.com you know. you'll see my uh, you know you and i had a conversation about this just last week about the dread of posting on social media and mm-hmm. I need to get better at it. And I, I don't think anybody needs to hear what I have to say, but if this masterclass comes to fruition, then I will post, I yeah. can be found on my website, on LinkedIn, Facebook. Yeah. Um, and perhaps we can, uh, you know, move the needle a little bit with that, but I'm always happy yeah. to hear from people. I'm always thrilled when somebody remembers a show or two. Yep. And as I get older, I just, I can, I can picture who's coming at me and what show they watched. Yes. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Okay, Michael. Thank you again so much. All right. See you next time. All right, everyone. Thank. That was another great episode of uh, Screenwriters Need to Hear This. What a wonderful guest. Uh, So interesting to hear from. All right, everyone. Until next week, more great guests coming up, uh, and keep writing. This has been an episode of Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jamin and Phil Hudson. If you're interested in learning more about writing, make sure you register for Michael's monthly webinar at michaeljammin.com webinar. If you found this podcast helpful, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. For free screenwriting tips, follow Michael Jammin on social media at michaeljamminwriter. You can follow Phil Hudson on social media at Phil A. Hudson. This podcast was produced by Phil Hudson. It was edited by Dallas Crane. Music by Ken Joseph. Until next time. Keep writing.